0: Amen. Thank you, Lord. We do pour out our praise. Thank you, Ryan, so much. Worship team. It's a really beautiful time of worship. Please go ahead and be seated. My name is Nate Amerson, and uh, with Anthony, out of town, taking a bit of a sabbatical. I had the opportunity to speak this morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity, so really grateful for each and every one of you that are here, anybody that's joining us online in Oklahoma Everybody that calls Free Church home, welcome this morning. Uh, Before we get started, just want to remind everyone that next week we are starting two services again, and this is going to be a really great opportunity because we're starting to actually get pretty full in one service, and like Anthony says, we have to have room to grow. If we're going to grow, we have to have room to grow, so that's why we're going back to two services. It'll be 9 and 11 starting next week, February the 5th. We will have child care only for real little kids, uh, maybe up through three years old in the first service, and then full child care ministries will be going on at the 11 o'clock service. So please just remember that and plug that into your schedule starting next week as uh, we go back to that. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity today. Uh, I get to to be the cleanup hitter. I get to back cleanup. And uh, for those of you who... Appreciate baseball, you know that the cleanup hitter always hits in the fourth spot in the batting order, right? So we this is a four-week series Anthony spoke Ladina, Tim, and then now I get to bat cleanup and For those of you like my wife who doesn't care at all about baseball and that has no meaning to you Then don't worry about it. This is just the fourth week in the series. So <laughs> So I, I am grateful for the opportunity to close out this series um, I think it's been so good talking about the church, and I have so enjoyed the last three weeks of this. Anthony, you remember the first week reminded us that Jesus built his church on the statement that Peter made, and each one of us is called to make that statement about who is Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ladina talked about the church as hub, and I really liked this mental imagery I've been thinking about it the last couple of weeks. And that we all have different things going on. We have work, we have family, we have school, we might have outreach, we might have community ministry, we might have evangelism, whatever. But all of that spoke are spokes that come off of the hub, which is church, that is the central element to everything else that we have going on. So I really like that imagery. And I really appreciate what Tim said last week about the importance of coming together as a corporate body, to worship together as one I've been thinking particularly about the imagery that he talked about with worship as one voice. One voice coming together with the voices of hundreds of people. I think that's such powerful imagery. It's all as worshiping as members of one body. So with that, what I am going to be concluding with talking about is some of the aspects of how we do church. We talked about why we do church and why church is important and why worship is important. We'll talk a little bit about how we do church and why that's important, because how we do church is one of the primary dividing factors among churches in America and in Western society. Not so much what we believe, although there's clearly some differences in what different church bodies believe, but it really, for the most part, is how we do church. And anybody who's been to more than one church knows that there's a million different ways to do church right? Some churches, it's really important to sing out of hymnals. Some churches, they only have a piano. They won't have any other instruments. Some churches say, no drums. Some churches like ours say, yes, go drums. (laughs) Thank you, Brandon, for playing today. I thought it was really, really good, right? So these are differences in how we do church. And one of the primary dividing factors among us as the church body, we should be united together as Christ's body, but we tend to be divided on some of these issues of how we do church, and more importantly, what we believe about what we do. And that's where, talking today, we're going to be talking about the sacraments. The sacraments. And in modern Protestant churches, this is not a word that we use real, real often. It's kind of a, I don't know, like a high high church-sounding word. But the sacraments are a super important aspect of our worship, and how we worship together. So, if anybody comes from a Catholic background, maybe was raised Catholic or went to Catholic school, you know that in the Catholic Church, they have a very different view of the sacraments than we do. So, for Catholics, there are seven sacraments that are held, and they are baptism, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, which is, means becoming a priest, uh, confession, Communion and last rites. So the ritual that is done when you die or when you're on your deathbed. Um, So for Protestants, we look at this a little bit differently because most of those that are considered sacraments for the Catholic Church are really based on the authority of the church and of church tradition. That's where it's drawn from. And so because as Protestants, who knows what sola scriptura means? Sola Scriptura was like the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation in the 15th and 16th century. And it means only Scripture. Back to the Bible. Read the Bible for yourself. And this is really where the Protestant Reformation took off in the 16th century. So we don't recognize as much the sacraments that are based mostly on the authority and tradition of the church. And rather ones that are based specifically on Scripture. So that's why today we'll be looking at two sacraments that we hold as Protestants and as members of this church particularly, and that will be exclusively looking at baptism and communion. So again, two aspects of how we do church and what we believe about that and why that's important. So a a lot of people, and I'm kind of one of them, you could think of marriage as a sacrament, because marriage is this representation of the covenant relationship that God made with us and gave us marriage as an enduring symbol of that covenant relationship, Um, So you could think of it as a sacrament, but it's kind of like uh, marriage is so universal to different cultures across the world that it's more considered like a natural institution than a sacrament. And so that's just to lay the foundation of why we're talking today specifically about baptism and communion. So we celebrate baptism as a ritual that is subsequent to salvation, a ritual that is subsequent to salvation, meaning that you have to have chosen to accept the work of Christ on the cross, God's grace and forgiveness for your sins, and repentance, and then baptism is an act that you do purposefully after having come to the point of repentance and accepting uh, Christ's forgiveness in the act of salvation. So, we'll look at a few scriptures here, because in the New Testament, John the Baptist's ministry, so he was really the first person that was going around baptizing people. It's considered, uh, it's described as baptism of repentance or baptism that comes from repentance. So that's why we see it as a subsequent act to salvation, is that we have to come to repentance first and then experience baptism. This is told in several different places in the Gospels, in Mark 1 and Luke chapter 3, and we'll look at um, sort of a retelling of John the Baptist's ministry and his story from the perspective of Paul in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is talking to Jewish believers, and he basically takes the time to retell the entire story of the history of the people of Israel, from Abraham through the exodus, through the giving of the law, all the way through the kingdom of David, who we know was that was like the the height, the pinnacle of the kingdom of the uh, people of Israel. And then he goes on to say in Acts 13 and verse 23, Acts 13, 23, he says, Of this man, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So what he's saying there is that to lay the foundation for Jesus' ministry, John preached baptism and repentance. all the people and that eventually introduced the person of jesus in his ministry that sort of cultural or society-wide call to repentance is what brought jesus into his ministry and we know that jesus began his ministry with baptism as well he goes to john the baptist so we have to ask ourselves why did jesus get baptized if baptism is an act that comes after salvation and is based on repentance, well, for one, Jesus didn't need salvation because he is God. He was ushering in salvation for everyone. And he didn't need to repent because he had no sin. There was nothing to repent of. But Jesus is very purposeful about this, initiating his own ministry with baptism as an example to his disciples and to his followers that would come later, as that's sort of the starting point for the christian for the christ follower is repentance and baptism as this public statement that one is embarking upon their new life in jesus christ having accepted god's forgiveness for our sins so jesus does this not because he needed to repent but because he wanted to set the example of baptism as this public statement that sort of initiates a new walk and a new path both for himself and for ourselves As Christ's followers. Paul goes on here again in Acts chapter 13. He goes on to say that the Jews didn't understand the prophets and didn't listen to them, and they didn't receive Jesus as God's Son, the Messiah. Continuing in verse 28, he says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So even here, speaking about Jesus' ministry at the very end of his life, Paul talks about Jesus going through death, burial, and then resurrection, being raised back to life, in this beautiful picture of what God has done and what God will continue to do in the Christ followers, the Body of Christ that would follow after him, continuing Jesus' ministry in the world. So, Paul there referencing death, burial, and resurrection, this is symbolized in baptism as well. And this is where it's a really beautiful picture when we talk about baptism. Because when we encounter Jesus, we must believe by God's grace, which has been offered to humanity by Jesus' work on the cross, by dying for us. That faith brings us to encounter our sin. Before that, we didn't really know about our sin, or maybe we didn't care. But when we encounter Jesus, we also have to encounter our sin, for which we have to repent, receive forgiveness, and salvation is the act that follows. Once we've done that, it very naturally follows that the next step is to make a public statement about what we've done in our life in following Jesus, and that public statement is in the act of baptism. Additionally, baptism itself is representative of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so the symbol is that as we go into the water, we represent a death of our old self. Our old nature is put to death because we have accepted God's forgiveness for our sins in salvation. We go under the water to represent the burial of Jesus, And then coming up out of the water to represent his resurrection and what for us is a new life, resurrection for ourselves, a new life in Christ as we begin a new walk with him. So baptism is this very beautiful symbol that both references Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and ourselves experiencing something similar in a symbolic way as we embark upon our new life in belief and in faith with Christ. I'd like to skip into Colossians to continue what Paul talks about when he's talking about the symbolic nature of baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, he makes another analogy here, another analogy for us to draw from. Colossians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 9. For in him, referring to Jesus, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, remember the symbology of death, burial, and resurrection there, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, these he set aside, nailing them to the cross. So we see two symbols that are sort of being utilized here. The first is circumcision. For the Jews, for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, Circumcision was the symbol of their covenant relationship with God, and what Paul is saying is that just as circumcision was that symbol for the Old Testament, for New Testament believers of which we are part of that body, baptism is now that symbol of the renewed covenant relationship with God and walking with Jesus, and it cancels the record of debt. God doesn't hold that debt of sin against us anymore. Because it says he actually nailed that debt to the cross. And that died with Christ's sacrifice. When he's raised in newness of life as we are coming out of baptism. That no longer has to be sort of held over our head. We no longer have that debt of sin. Because we've accepted Christ's forgiveness for it. And we can walk in that newness of life just as Jesus did. And just as he calls all of us to. So that is really the act of baptism in a nutshell, is one public proclamation of the steps that you're taking as a believer to walk with Christ and putting to death your sin, your old self, being forgiven and being raised with him, and then also the symbol of the relationship that you now have, that God has called you to, to be in covenant relationship with himself. And then finally, Peter makes it very clear in Acts chapter 2 that he instructs believers, to carry out this act. So it's made very clear that not only is it a beautiful picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and our belief with him, but it's also we are instructed to get baptized and to baptize others who come into faith with Jesus. In Acts 2.38, he makes these instructions very clear. Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, "'in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins.'" And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God gives us the Holy Spirit to come and live with us in our hearts to speak to us about the sanctified life that he has called us to live, a holy life set apart to him. And the symbol of that act is baptism as we come up out of the water. And it's not to say necessarily that uh, every new believer receives baptism in the Holy Spirit at that time, although it happens, I've seen it. Um, That's not necessarily what we believe exclusively, but God has given us the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us and to live in our hearts that we might be able to walk the walk that he's called us to do. So with that, I have to transition into talking about the second of the sacraments that we're talking about today, and that is communion. My wife said, um, my wife said, don't go late because nobody likes that. So... So I'm keeping keeping that in mind, but there's obviously a lot here. There's a lot here. So if you want to talk more about the sacraments afterward, come and find me, come corner me, and we'll talk more about it. But the communion is called the Lord's Supper or the Mass or the Eucharist. These terms are all used synonymously in different sectors of of Christianity in in various churches. Um, Millard Erickson is a theologian that I very much like. I've drawn a lot from his work, and what he says is, Baptism is the initiatory rite of Christianity, so that means it comes at the beginning, and then communion is the continuing rite of Christianity, so like rite or ritual processes that, that we go through in worship is what he's referring to. So baptism is initial, and then communion is ongoing throughout our relationship with Christ because he calls us to do that in remembrance of him. So every time we remember the Lord Jesus and we think about our relationship with him, communion is called for and is a very natural act of worship that we take place in. So communion is the ongoing ritual whereby we refocus our relationship with God, our love toward God, and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into the sanctified life. So communion is, because of what's told in the scriptures, communion is very universal across pretty much all Christian churches to include, you know, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, people that worship very differently than us. They all partake in communion, but it looks very differently because of what they believe about it, what we believe about it. So just to give an overview, we'll touch on a few of those because it's important when you're talking with other people who might have come from other church traditions Communion is important to all of our worship, but we believe a little bit of different things about it. And so, just being familiar with that is important to understand. For Catholics, the act of communion is actually constitutes a miracle. Each and every time the priest offers and prays over and says his ritual over the bread and the wine, a miracle takes place in which the substance of it actually becomes the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. This is called transubstantiation. This is not something that that we believe, and I'll get into what Protestants believe. For Lutherans, it sounds a little bit different. They talk about the elements or the presence of the body and blood of the Lord are in, with, and under the physical elements of communion. Again, that's a little bit different than what we believe. For the Orthodox, they ask God that the materials of communion would become the body and blood of the Lord. Again, that's a little bit different than what Catholics and Lutherans believe. For Protestants, for what we believe here at Free Church, is that the materials of communion are purely symbolic. It is done in remembrance of Christ. We don't believe that it actually becomes the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus, but is symbolic, is representative of Christ himself and of his sacrifice, um, and of the moment that he takes with his disciples at the very end of his life, where he initiates the taking of communion, the bread and the blood, and establishes that as a ritual that we are supposed to carry on. And these, that story is told throughout the Gospels in a little bit of different ways, but each one of them touches on what's called the, the Last Supper, where Jesus himself initiates this ritual of communion, the taking of the bread and wine or juice in this case. And then Paul also expounds on this a little bit differently than is told in the Gospels in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, I'd like to read this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that is what we are remembering. Through this act is particularly Christ's sacrifice. Without Christ's holy life and his sacrificial willingness to give himself to be the sacrifice for our sin, none of us would be here and none of what we believe would have any meaning. But Christ himself becoming the sacrifice for our sin, like we talked about before, God actually took our debt and put it on the cross with Jesus, and it died with him. So remembering that act is the beauty of the act of taking the cup and the juice in communion, is remembering that sacrifice and renewing our relationship and our deep love for Christ based on the forgiveness of our sins which allows us to even come before the Father in the first place. So we believe that, of course, God himself is present in all places, right? He's omnipresent, to use a big theology word. So he doesn't have to actually inhabit the materials of the communion because God is always with us. The Holy Spirit is in all places at all times. So that's why we hold that the elements of communion are simply representative of that Last Supper and of the act that Jesus initiated that he tells us to do to remember him, to remember his death and his sacrifice. In this way, it's a moment that we set aside, solemnly and seriously, to consider Christ's act, to be grateful for God's love, providing a way to overcome our sin, and to be reminded of the life of sanctity to which we are called, being set apart for God. That is that holy lifestyle that God has called us to, and which we struggle to achieve throughout our life because of our sin. But in this moment, we remember the act that Christ took upon himself to enact forgiveness for all of our sins. And so we renew our love for God and, again, can go before the Father to repent of our sins and renew that relationship with him, that he's called us to do. So this is not something that you should take lightly or not something that you should do without a little bit of seriousness or being solemn about it because Paul goes on to give some instructions about what we do when we experience the Lord's Supper, when we take communion. In verse 27 of the same chapter, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So he's saying... Think about it for yourself so that God's not judging you for your sin. Because when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So our sin judges us, it's still held against us. And that's why we continually have to go back to the Father and repent, apologize for our sins, and ask for forgiveness. Because throughout our lives, folks, I'm sorry, but we never stop sinning, it's part of our nature. It's how we're made. So we have to go before the Father and ask for his forgiveness. And that's what we do in this act as well, is remembering Christ's sacrifice and the beauty of the forgiveness that we can experience because of his sacrificial act on the cross. As a final note, I'd like to just point out that communion is this serious moment that we set aside. But you don't have to use specifically these ingredients because it's symbolic of Christ's act, and we use it as an opportunity to renew our relationship with him, you can take communion with anything. We use these as sort of a traditional elements to, when it comes to communion, to have something prepared. But you can take communion with anything. And I'd like to throw up my final slide, which is a cover of a book called In the Presence of My Enemies. And this is a story of A guy named Howard Rutledge, who in the 1960s was a naval aviator, and he was shot down in Vietnam, was a POW for seven years at the Hanoi Hilton, a prisoner of the Viet Cong. He was the believer, and it was his faith that got him through these years of torture, of pain, of deprivation, and his faith brought him through that and was built stronger because of it. And something that he would do is he would take just a little bit of the meager portion of rice and of water that they were given as prisoners, and he would set it aside so that once a week he would take that little bit of rice and take that little bit of water and go through the motions that we do now of communion so that he could take that moment of solemnity, set it aside to remember his relationship and what Christ has done for us in sacrifice. So I just wanted to close with that because it's a beautiful example of someone who takes that moment despite their situation. Goes through the motions of taking the bread and taking the juice or whatever it is. If it's rice and water, whatever the case might be. To remember the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Today as the band begins to play our final song, I'd like to invite you to share a moment of communion with us. Sometimes we have the elements are like sort of at your seat or under your seat, but this time we uh, have the elements, as you can see, up here in front of us. And here at Free Church, we just want you to understand the importance of communion. Use it as this moment, like Paul talked about, to judge yourself and enter into repentance again for your sins. And also just that you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus... Now is as good a time as any to bring yourself before the Father and repent of your sins. So if anyone wants to receive salvation today and forgiveness for your sins, we can do that right now. Just bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, I know that I've sinned. I know that no amount of work can make me righteous in your sight. But Lord, only Christ's sacrifice for my sins can cleanse me and allow me to come into your presence your holy presence jesus please forgive me for my sins let me come into a relationship with you and holy spirit i welcome you into my life so that the presence of god goes with me everywhere if you said that very simple prayer we'd like for you to come up and experience communion if you said that prayer 20 or 50 years ago we'd like you to come up and experience communion with us it's just important that you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus that's the starting point point. and then use this moment to solemnly come before the presence of God consider your sins repent and remember the sacrifice that Christ made that allows us to have this moment that we're having today if you would exit to the outside of the aisles cycle through take the elements of communion and go back to your seat as Ryan is singing this last song Just take the communion elements on your own when you feel like it's the right time for yourself. And then we'll continue in worship, and Ryan will close us. But just remember that this is an important moment, a solemn moment of worship. And I invite you, go ahead and start coming up to take the elements of communion.